Hello, and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 75 movies, one cage. This is episode 50, World Trade Center, from 2006, directed by Oliver Stone. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Joey Lewandowski, and with us today we have repeat guest Tobin Addington, last heard on Bringing Out the Dead. Welcome back, Tobin. Hey, thanks, guys. I'm, I'm uh, happy to be here. Happy to have you. Now, this is a movie that's set in the same city as Bringing Out the Dead. While that was kind of a little depressing, this is immensely much more depressing than that one. Yeah, it's totally true. This, this one does not hold back in or different ways than the Bringing Out the Dead, but yeah, it's true. This is not a happy film. Now, I had never seen this movie. Had either of you seen this before? I have not. No, this is another first-time Cage Club screening for me. I knew absolutely nothing about it but what I could derive from the title. So, <laughs> I mean, I just didn't, I wasn't aware of what the story was going to be, who the characters were, or what the situation was. Yeah, I had not seen this movie either. I have to confess at the outset that very early in my film viewing, in my conscious film viewing life, I was a pretty big Oliver Stone fan, which is not something that people usually usually cop to in uh, <laughs> in certain circles. I remember I saw JFK when I was I don't know twelve or thirteen or something. And it just like blew my mind, you know. And so, but I had I had not seen this either. I only knew that it was Oliver Stone. And then it was supposed to be not hyperkinetic, batty Oliver Stone. It's a, uh, you know, I remember the reviews saying something about being sort of surprisingly restrained for Oliver Stone. Yeah. But beyond that, beyond that, and the fact it's a true story, I knew nothing. Yeah, I think this is maybe the least Oliver Stone movie that Oliver Stone has maybe created. I'd, I'd say, like, that's the thing I noticed immediately: how in control he seemed. Yeah, it's interesting in terms of his his filmmaking, and we'll get to this as I guess as we talk about the film. But uh, if you look at his earliest films, they weren't the Oliver Stone that comes to be epitomized by something like JFK or Any Given Sunday. These films that take you know seven editors and uh, three of them credited and just assault you with crazy filmmaking techniques. That, that his earlier films, as as maybe as as masculine as they were, were, were more restrained like this. I mean, Platoon has its moments, but it's also a uh, compared to some of his later films is a more cinematically restrained I hate to even use the word restrained because it's not really but just in terms of the in terms of sheer filmmaking techniques is more restrained than some of his later work. Yeah, I definitely thought of Platoon from time to time watching this film just in the way that he treated the material. Yeah, I sort of always considered Oliver Stone like an activist filmmaker born on the 4th of July natural born killers just like JFK. That's sort of what he became known for, right? His persona and so to be quite honest, you know, I kind of actively avoided watching this movie for the most part, up until I kind of yeah. had to, because I just didn't want to watch an Oliver Stone 9-11 film, because I was afraid right. it, it was just going to be sensational. I mean, I kind of avoided this movie, because I don't really want to... I mean, I was only 13 for 9-11. Like, our teachers didn't tell us, and so we sat in school all day, knowing wow. something major had happened, everything was weird, and teachers were, like, running to the library... And this was before cell phones, before really internet was everywhere, you know? And we knew something had happened, but we didn't know what, and nobody was telling us. And it was just this really weird kind of vibe. I didn't know anybody in New York. I didn't know anybody who was killed that day, thankfully. 9-11 has always been sort of weird, and, like, I didn't really want to go back to this kind of movie because I already did that thing. Like, I already, like it's, it's horrible, it's awful, I have weird memories about it. 
I don't really want to go back. And so I've sort of been not avoiding this movie, but not really looking forward to watching it for Cage Club. Yeah, it's kind of interesting how, you know, Joe, you spent the day sort of in confusion, and, and I got was sitting there in front of my TV all day watching the news unfold. And, and that sort of seems to be like a theme in this film as well, just sort of communication and the way information was handled and yeah. sort of how different information travels, you know, a few years later, less, you know, just a decade later. It's kind of interesting how my experience it was just, you know, getting ready for work and seeing this happen and then staying glued to my television vision the rest of the day trying to figure out like everyone else through an influx of misinformation what exactly was was going on yeah i i avoided the film for a lot of the same reasons i had arrived in new york for film school from the west on somewhere in the late august of 2001 so i was that timing brand new to the city so it colored my view of <laughs> this, this place I had moved to uh, obviously and and I you know as you're saying Joey I, I didn't know anybody in, you know personally connected or you know I, I did not experience the horror in that kind of way but I had no interest when this film came out of you know taking that that journey again I just this and United 93 and I just had no desire to to touch that you know so soon five years after the fact um, also by 2006 my appreciation for Oliver Stone had cooled after five years of film school uh, pretty considerably. So he was not, not a draw for me either. I had the same kind of experience, Mike, as you did, of, of thinking of him as an activist filmmaker in a way that, that I just found less interesting at that moment. And as you say, I just didn't want to, I didn't want to necessarily experience his view of, of 9-11. That, that was my feeling at the time. What I wound up really liking about this movie, and I don't want to compare myself to what they went through or what the real people went through, the beginning of the movie, and I guess this is sort of true of everybody, you're like, you just don't know what's going on. They're running around and they're saying like who would fly a plane into the world trade center like what kind of idiot would like mess up that bad and then they're trying to figure out if there's one plane or two planes and it's like this sort of bubble that they're in that they know a little bit about and they don't really know about and so i think that it's kind of interesting in terms of how the people on the scene and even the people watching at home in the movie they all sort of have the same kind of experience like they know some of the details but not everything and it kind of, I think, goes along and parallels what the, the viewers are watching, too. Yeah, maybe my favorite part of the movie is the very opening, not the first shot that starts at the alarm clock, but just the opening before the attacks where you see, you know, this glorious, beautiful, sunny day in New York, and it's it's America pre-9-11. There's a real simplicity, sort of a, a, a beauty, a, you know, the naivete that those images evoke is is the, the nostalgia that that evokes. I sort of, you sort of want to go back and live in that moment, you know, yeah. in, in some ways. So, yeah, I think that's some of the, the strongest stuff in the film. Oliver Stone's just doing a great job sort of setting up the beginning of this film starting it it's almost like a silent film for the first like five or ten minutes where the city just wakes up and, and everyone gets on their way to work it really does give this sense of natural life you know it's almost like watching a nature documentary of humanity right at, at the start here and, and i'm just uh, i'm already just like blown away like this is not the oliver stone i was expected <laughs> right you know and i started to get maybe not excited but definitely like engaged with where he was gonna go with this story and how he was going to t- I knew immediately like he wasn't going to be crass you know what I'm saying like I see him as always trying to push the medium and do something new or be in your face he's not exactly the most subtle guy here he is going to be you know he's going to put all that aside and do this with respect and just try and tell a story without too many tricks yeah this is not at all the movie that I was expecting I 
was expecting kind of cage in action star mode, running up and down buildings, rescuing people, looking for bodies in the rubble. What we get instead is this really sort of small story. 25, even maybe even less than 25 minutes into the movie, Cage and Michael Pena and his whole team are buried in rubble, and they're there for the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, it's such a different movie. I was expecting, I think, like you guys are both saying, this big, flashy kind of movie, and instead we almost get the opposite. And I was, the word, I think Mike's word, like, you know, blown away. It's so well done, I think, in terms of treating it with respect and also not sensationalizing things, and you don't really see any of the destruction. It's around, we know the story, and so instead of telling the big story, we're going to focus on this one little story of these two guys. Yeah, and so there's quite a bit of, of maybe surprising artistry going on leading up to, to those moments. You know, the first time there's a hint of the, of the planes is the, the shot of Michael Pena as just the shadow crosses him. Yeah, uh, oh, and terrifying. it's just such a chilling, chilling image and moment. You know, he's not milking that for all it's worth. It happens, and we, because we know what's gonna, ha- what's what's coming, we bring all that with us. And but then the, we, it moves on to another part of the story. And and I think that there were there are touches like that that led me to believe as we were getting into the film that this was going to be a much more, Mike, as you were saying, in control. Maybe not any less unsubtle, but at least in control of his medium. Oliver Stone movie. I feel like he does a great job of establishing a certain perspective that we're going to stay with for the entire film. You know, even when we cut away to the families at a certain point, it still stays with those people and their story. There's no obligatory B stories going on here, really. Yeah, he establishes we're going to follow these cops. We're going to know only what they know, right? The entire time, right? right? We're never going to see the planes hit because they've never seen the planes hit. When they're trapped in the rubble, we're only going to experience what they did and i just appreciated that and that to me seems harder than going all out balls to the wall right like mixed medium mtv version as this movie's going along i'm just like i'm in awe pretty much and you know i i don't know maybe it's forcing me to sort of deal with certain emotions about the day that i've not dealt with at the time and but it ends up being like kind of cathartic and i mean I don't know, i'm glad this movie exists to a certain degree you know i don't know is that weird to say no and i think what the most important thing or maybe not the most important thing but one of the most important things is that the story is based on or accounted for or told by the character that cage plays the character that Pena plays and their wives that the four of them sort of wrote the story or told this story and this woman andrea burloff who just wrote straight out of Compton, wrote the screenplay for this. So, I mean, she has... Like, I mean, both of those movies, in terms of like telling a real story in a semi-fictional way, or sort of taking real events and putting it into a movie, it's tastefully done, appropriately done, and respectfully done. And I think it just works that they're paying respect to these people's memories and experiences and lives without sensationalizing anything or doing things for the movie's sake. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a moment once they know something is going on in Lower Manhattan where John's team commandeers the city bus to, yeah. to to take this this team, and you know, you watch that, and you can imagine the the in a different kind of movie, maybe not even a nine eleven movie, but in a different in a Jerry Bruckheimer movie where where Nicholas Cage's character is going to commandeer a bus. And, and how that would look and feel. It's a, sort of sensationalize that, I'm taking over this bus, or, you know, whatever whatever it would be. And in this, it's just, it's just purely matter of fact. You don't even quite, re- they don't draw attention to that fact. You know, it's, it's just happening in this one long steady cam shot before Cage gets in his, the, 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 the vehicle he's going to drive ahead of the bus. And it, that sort of a non-flashiness 
I think really sets you up to appreciate what's coming next. You know, the movie a movie will always teach you how to watch it in its first few scenes, and and that's what this movie is is telling us is that it knows that you know what happened that day. And it's going to be as respectful as it can and keep as tight as it can to the character's experience of the actual day and, and in as respectful a way as possible. And uh, I think that, that pays off you know, to a large degree here. So yeah, they commandeer this bus because they... Well, the movie starts out when they get to work and they're all treating it like a normal day just because it is a normal day. And they're passing out assignments and that cage is this guy, John McLaughlin, a patrol sergeant for the NYPD. He's just passing out, you know, you're going to work here, you're going to work here. And then they find out that something has happened, that they commandeer the bus, they go down, and they're, they're looking for volunteers, and they all just rush in, really without knowledge of what's happening, without necessarily care for themselves. They're just, they know that they have a job to do, and they're just going to go and do it. We learn in the bus ride on the way down that John, Nicholas Cage's character, has a history with World Trade Center, that, he, that he'd worked there in the past, that he, you know, he knows the building, he knows the area, and so that, that's one of the reasons that they're deferring to him, that he's in charge of this sort of mission. That's, that's a crass way to put it, maybe, but the team that's going down, you, you can't help but put yourself in, their, in these guys' position as they're, as they're going in. You know, even if you didn't know what we all know happens... I, I just can't imagine having that kind of job. Uh, these people train for this and do this, um, not knowing what they're going to find when they get in someplace. And that's even true, actually, before the attacks, when they're just, you know, Port Authority cops. I cannot imagine, as we talked last time I was on about, uh, you know, paramedics in New York City and bringing out the dead, like, these are jobs that are not for the faint of heart. Right. Um, I like this mode of cage. I like this sort of competent, low-key, in-control cage, you know? And I and I think it, it mirrors the way uh, Oliver Stone is approaching this movie, maybe, that, that he's it's got a job to do, we're going to do the job to the best of our ability, and we're all going to get home. And and not to equate, you know, making a, a movie with being a fire or a, a sure. Port Authority police, policeman, but just in terms of the way they approach a job. And I like this cage. I would follow this cage. I would follow this man. Yeah, I think this is a really good role for Cage. Like he's he commands presence on the screen like immediately. And uh, maybe it's just because of Cage Club and like <laughs> we've seen him in all of his different roles. And but I'm buying him. You know, I think he nailed the accent. I'm, I'm glad he tried it. I yes. think he pulled it off. I'm loving the mustache, right? And, yes. <laughs> and there's just something behind his eyes that I can't quite place. There's like he's got to be like a hard ass but there's something gentle going on there that kind of contradicts his face to me it's i'm getting a weird vibe and i'm liking it though i'm glad that he's in this role and i i don't know once watching it i really couldn't think of anyone else sort of doing this and later on you know I, i've got another <laughs> cageism about his acting technique that i'd like to bring up when they're trapped as well in preparing for his portrayal, Cage focused on accurately speaking with a New York accent like he's done in a lot of movies. We were just talking, I was just like editing The Lord of War, and we were talking about accents there and about how Cage really hadn't done an accent in a while. And this is sort of a subtle accent, but it works, and it sort of puts him in the position. But another thing that he did in terms of preparing for the role is that he spent hours in a sensory deprivation tank. Again, sort of Cage fully committing to the part. The other thing I wanted to mention was that Cage, you were saying, I can't imagine anybody else other than Cage doing this, and I think I tend to agree there, but it seems like Cage was not necessarily Oliver Stone's first choice, that apparently Mel Gibson was one of the guys that Oliver Stone wanted the most, and Gibson liked the script but turned it down to direct Apocalypto, George Clooney was considered for the main role. Mm. Kevin Costner was attached to the role with Hilary Swank. But then they dropped out and instead narrated a documentary about 9-11. Um, John Travolta turned down the role. One other thing was that Paramount Pictures was concerned that with Costner and Oliver Stone teamed up again, 
like they had for JFK, it might turn out to be a little bit kind of conspiracy theory-ish, and so they sort of steered him away from that. But it seems like, you know, in terms, there's four or five actors right there. It seems like Cage was not at the top of the list, but you're right. I think he absolutely kills it. I don't think there's necessarily anybody who could do it better. He's sort of like the only lead actor in the film. He's surrounded by who are at the time not necessarily big names, but they've come to be quite well known. And I feel like, you know, not only is he sort of the sergeant of these cops, but he's also like, in a way, the mentor to these actors. I can just feel him giving a lot to this role, a lot for these other guys to play off. And it's not necessarily the biggest part either for any of these guys, right? I mean, it's very hard to play the common man and everybody has to do their own version of that. And I I can sort of see in a way him and Michael Pena, at least, you know, definitely developing a rapport of some kind and and playing off that. In this movie, in smaller roles, is uh, Maria Bello? Isn't she back from something or no? No, she's not. Tell you what she's back from, Joey. And this is something that I've come to notice more and more cage has another blonde wife (laughs) just something that started sticking out to me lately another blonde co-star well i mean taylor (laughs) taylor leone right and then we had well we had meg Meg ryan Ryan. trisha arquette we've had a lot of people right and then um diane kruger diane kruger recently and then even in um weatherman his wife was blonde so i just wanted to point out that (laughs) (laughs) i've just like it's an unignorable cage connection that came up so we have maria bello we have john bernthal from the Walking Dead and from a bunch of stuff. I actually thought it was kind of cool that Bernthal and Michael Pena teamed up. Like, I love them in Fury. I don't know if you guys saw Fury a couple years ago or last year, but they were both incredible in that, and they're both great in this. We have Maggie Gyllenhaal. We have Michael Shannon and William Maypother, two of, like, the creepiest actors in the world. And when they're on screen together and they're like the search crew, it's just William Maypother from Lost and Michael Shannon from Boardwalk Empire, like those characters are just terrifying. And like they sort of have like these like the stigma in my eyes, but they're great in this movie though. It's so true. When when Michael Shannon showed up, I, I just about flipped. I had no clue he was in this movie. And <laughs> yeah. then then the shot, you know, he was getting his hair cut, you know, yep. the buzz cut. We're jumping ahead, but this is it's this is the moment. And then next time you see him, he's in his marine uniform. He's not a marine anymore officially. He's but he's put back on his uniform. He's come to Ground Zero entirely of his own volition to to search through the night for for people. As he walks across the thing in this uniform, you know, through the police barricades and stuff, you know, part of my brain is like, oh my god, he's a traitor you know like he, yeah. he's, he's he's so identified in my mind he has that that such such an intense dark you know look in his eye part of my brain somewhere is like he this is don't trust this man you know and of course he, that turns out to be nothing like his character um and and yet i just he brings so much baggage for me as an actor i just i couldn't i couldn't believe it and i'm watching him going like this guy basically like just caused an incident like this in Man of Steel as General Zod, and now he's gonna like resolve an incident like this, like Batman seems to want to do in the next film. And I'm just, you're right. It's it's this weird thing that comes along with being typecast, perhaps, or things like that. But I think the role called for a certain intensity. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like I, he, yes. I get so much from so little. As soon as his character sees the attacks, he like tells his coworkers, "This is war," and he leaves his job. 
at like what seems to be just some cubicle job and then he's basically at ground zero like part of the crew like digging everybody out and so you know you get this concept of maybe he was you know on a religious quest you know he mentions once or twice god but like just through his intensity you get like a lot more than i think other actors could bring to it like the supporting cast is is definitely strong here it's true and i i should say I, my my uh, fear of michael shannon dissipated you know almost immediately once he's there and he's he's perfect for this part and i think you would need to be some kind of you know you would need to have that level of intensity to go do what he does yeah. uh, and 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 i think that and he's and he's great i mean I, I think he's fabulous and he's not always you know creepy but but i did i did have that have that feeling in there one thing that's kind of interesting about his i don't want to call it a character because he's based on a real person is that apparently early test audiences didn't think he was real that he's got such a weird kind of journey we don't know who he is he's just in an office and says we're at war, goes to the church, and then drives down to Ground Zero, and you don't know really what his focus is. I mean, he basically gives up everything to go search for bodies in the rubble and then go re-enlist in the war. Early test audiences didn't think he was a real person, but in fact he was, and he was this guy that, like the credits at the end say, he re-enlisted in the Marines after serving two tours and served another two tours. So I think part of what makes him off-putting maybe in the movie, at least initially before you realize that he actually only has good intentions, is that his journey to get to that point is so unique and sort of singularly focused. Right, right. I think that's true. I think that's true. And we, we, we shouldn't neglect the point that Oliver Stone went to Vietnam. You know, he, he, he does know soldiers, and he would have a, you know, he he's a, he's a, has a certain intensity himself. And I don't know that this is any kind of, this is no sort of direct relation to him in any way, but there, but there is that sense that he he immediately understands his calling at that moment. You know, he's only, he's only on screen for, what, maybe seven, eight minutes total in this movie? You can't help but remember him, not just because he's Michael Shannon, but because of that combined with what he does. He's kind of like the Boba Fett of the movie, in my eyes. <laughs> Least amount of screen time, but best type of screen time. Yeah, I thought of, of Oliver Stone having been at war and things of that nature when it came to where the cops start to get buried alive, you know? And mm-hmm. not that it was sort of like a war zone situation, but just trying to make sense or bring a sort of sanity to such a surreal situation, one that actually happened. You know what I'm saying? Like, we were watching Wind Talkers, and it's like, as crazy as you try and make war seem, it's that much crazier, right? Like, it's almost impossible to, as they say, like, kind of humanize it, I guess, or relate to it in a way. Oliver Stone might have brought some sense of how do you cope in a surreal situation? Well, I've been through one of the worst of them, I'd say, and like right. I, I think he, he yeah. was able to convey stuff like that and make this for all intent and purpose, make this a watchable film. Like I wasn't sure if this is the type of film you could get through in one sitting or not. And he seemed to bring a sense of perspective to it that the common man was able to wrap their head around. I mean well, at one point no. it's just a conversation between two men buried alive dying, you know, and it's like you don't really think of that until the scene ends, you know, it's or else it would take you completely out of the scene. But it's there and he he does it somehow obviously like on actual 9-11 on september 11 2001 it was like you couldn't look away and this you sort of worry that you're you're gonna have to look away but he does it in a way that like he's like i've been there i know how to do this right just trust me and like he it sort of requires a little bit of trust right to to, to take the plunge to watch this movie but once you do, you realize that it's gonna like it's gonna be tough to watch, but it's not gonna be it's never gonna reach that point like you were saying, Mike, where you're gonna have to put it down for a little bit and then come back later. You're gonna be able to get through it and you're gonna wanna keep watching because it's so well made. 
can I make a, a criticism of the film at this point? Once they get trapped, after after they're trapped and we know they're trapped and they're the only two left of the of the crew that, that had followed Cage into the, the buildings, the movie for me begins to at times feel a little bit like a late 90s TV movie, particularly when it cuts back to the to the wives. I couldn't always put my finger on how or why, but there was a, a, a more generic quality it, it felt like came into the film in those moments and I, and I didn't and I didn't buy all those scenes in the same way that I bought the bought the other scenes. You know, Oliver Stone is not a subtle filmmaker. That's okay. Not every movie calls for subtlety. There was just a great article in Slate, Slate.com by Forrest Whitman or something about being in defense of not being subtle, in defense of being on the nose. Uh, and, that, and that some forms, uh, like opera, call for that, for these heightened emotions, right? It, it tied in a little bit to, to the Lindsay Gibb book, it, for me. There are moments when that really works to the film's advantage that Oliver Stone is not a subtle filmmaker. And then other times where, it's, <laughs> where it works against the, against the film, you know? The, the movie started to feel much more uneven once they were trapped. Which is not to say that it wasn't good, but it, it wasn't working as well, I thought. I definitely understand those criticisms. Like, I was surprised we were even going to cut away from the people who were trapped. I don't know if you're familiar with this film called Buried, starring only Ryan Reynolds, who was basically, Buried plays a contractor in the Middle East who gets kidnapped and buried alive. And that's the entire movie is basically him with a cell phone buried alive. I thought we were going to go there with this type of film. And when they cut, I, I started to think of Apollo 13 or some coal miners trapped somewhere like the new Antonio Banderas film like it just started to feel a little more generic I still was going with it because I know where they're going what they, what he was going for I don't think mainstream audiences can handle two people buried alive for two hours sure. uh, you know so I get what, what he needed to do for that reason but yeah I wasn't expecting it and it was it was a sort of a curveball when it occurred the thing that occurred to me I, I don't think it's the actors I think it's the writing so the movie's script was based on the book that the, that the two guys wrote. You know, so here are two guys who want to pay tribute to their fallen comrades and who want to share their story and, and also honor the sacrifice and things that their, that their wives did. And I think because of that, those scenes uh, don't have any kind of distance to them. They're, they're, they feel very, not all of them, but a lot of them, they feel sort of like Stations of the Cross of this kind of movie. You know, uh, that, that just felt less, so much less specific than, say, Michael Shannon's. And, and there's some good filmmaking in these moments. There are moments where, you know, there, there's a, some handoffs where, where Nicolas Cage has a memory of finding out that he and Donna, Maria Bella's character, he and his wife are, are expecting sort of a surprise fourth child. He, he closes his eyes and he has this memory and then we come out of the memory into Maria Bello remembering it. And, and that, that, I thought, was, was beautiful. That happens once or twice more in the film. You know, then, then it's followed almost immediately by a scene where that kid, or one of his four kids, is telling his mom, you know, you don't really care about Dad, do you? And, and the, the kid's not very good, and the scene isn't very good, and I just don't, I don't buy, you know, maybe two-thirds of the scenes with the wives. I think that might be for two different reasons. I didn't have as much of a problem as you did while I was watching it, but I knew that there was something off, and hearing you talk about it now kind of flipped the switch in my brain. I know why you had a problem, maybe, and why I had a problem. It just feels like a movie instead of something real. Yes. That when they're at the house and the cop cars pull up, like, how many movies have you seen that in where they're just like, oh, no, don't tell me, I can't go to the door, I don't want to know. That just feels like, I'm sure that's also how it happens in real life, but it feels like something that happens in movies that we just expect to happen in movies. Or that kid, like you were saying, 
you know, sitting in the car until his mom goes to find his dad, that might have been exactly how it happened in real life. I don't know. I mean, I wasn't there. I haven't read this book. When you have, like, these real, actual, sort of heartfelt moments between Cage and Michael Pena, or Michael Shannon doing this very intense, a little bit crazy, but real grounded in reality thing, contrasting it with these kind of people, like, it's almost like watching the audience watch the movie. Like, they're they're helpless, we're helpless, and just, it feels artificial and doesn't feel as authentic as the rest of the movie. One other issue could be that they doubled down on all that, too, with, with the both wives, right? So, like, for the most part, they're going through the same thing. So, unfortunately, like, not only is it kind of handled it a little bit uninterestingly, but we have to see it twice, right? Like, it, maybe if they had focused on each of the wives a little less and in different moments or at different parts of the day and then just spread it out through, you know, maybe the more Michael Shannon character or the man from Wisconsin who just suddenly shows up at the end to sell bratwurst, you know? I mean, I'm just saying, like, you could have peppered in a lot of ordinary people and gotten, you know, that would have been an interesting way to go when we finally cut away from the rubble and we see varying perspectives of different people on the street or, or whoever and how other people's days were going for the rest of that night. Maybe another reason that those scenes feel, Joey, as you say, more artificial or gave me that TV movie vibe is that the scenes between Nicolas Cage and Michael Pena when they're in the rubble are so good and not even necessarily the way they're written you know there's some that ah, the writing is feels again a little on the nose in a way that isn't necessarily bad but but they are so good in those scenes i mean here's nicholas cage plays three quarters of the movie in a close-up where he can't move any other part of his body but his face yeah and and it's captivating i cannot say enough good things about the quality of his work in this film and and i was not expecting that going in i mean i knew they got trapped and you know i knew there was going to be a lot of sort of 127 hours quality to this movie but the amount he was able to do vocally and with his eyes you know in this in the same way that you guys have talked about with a lot of films here that his use of his voice his use of his face of his mouthful face and and so to hear to strip away the rest of his physicality and leave him with just his face and and have him be as good as he is is pretty remarkable and then then compared to his co-stars the his playing his wives who have use of their entire body but scenes that aren't as good or, or something maybe the comparison makes it a little a little difficult for them because he He's, he's acting with a high degree of difficulty in pulling it off. I absolutely agree, and, and that's what I was going to bring up at this point where they get trapped. You know, I talk a lot in the past, you know, half-jokingly about Nicolas Cage, the actor, likes to handicap himself, you know. In Birdie, he'll cover half his face with bandages. It, you know, he wears sunglasses through scenes in multiple films, right? Like, he, he likes to be in disguise as much as possible to not use his face, which is unusual for an actor and challenging at, at the least. And this is a chance for him to do something like that. It's like the exact opposite, right? He has to only use his eyes and only use his face and that to me was like the performance like it looks so easy but that has to be like one of the most challenging things for an actor to do and, and Michael Pena is doing a lot as well with very little too you know like he, he's not as immobile but he's not you know he's not moving around either you know and, and he's keeping up with him they're in lockstep in this film. Yeah, I think this is probably one of Cage's better performances. I mean, this is not a movie that I'm going to recommend to people to watch. This is a movie that you're either going to watch or you're never going to watch. Right. I don't think that there's, this is something that you can be like, oh, if you want to see Cage in a good role, check out this movie about 9-11. <laughs> there's other things that we can refer. But in terms of just his commitment and ability and just sort of, you know, the way that he embodies a role, 
And we're talking about this, I think, during adaptation, right, Mike? That when he lives in the body of a real person, of something based in reality, it seems to work really, really well more often than not. Yeah, when he's portraying a a real-life person. I think, like, critically, these seem to be the kind of performances that people want, right? Like, everyone says he's this outlandish actor until he does something like Joe, which people are like, oh, he he didn't do anything in that movie. What a brilliant actor. And it's just like, no, (laughs) it's like, you know, the lack is just as tough as the excess or what have you. I just felt like this would have gotten him more recognition, more respect. I mean, I think, like, you come across this film, I don't think you necessarily put it on for its entertainment value per se having seen it it's undeniable like his abilities here you know like <laughs> if you really wanted to shut someone up you should be like watch world trade center and there's nicholas cage like that's what he's capable of because for 90 minutes of this movie he's buried underground both him and i like you were saying i don't want to undersell michael Payne because they're both in that same position where they have so little to work with and they're just so tremendously gifted at what they're getting across Yes, when you know you named earlier the other actors who were considered for this part, and and they're all you know great actors in their own right in doing certain things, and I can imagine all of them that you mentioned, Costner and Travolta and Clooney doing the opening. You know, I can imagine them all being you know veterans in the Port Authority Police. This section here, which again is most of the movie, the vast majority of this film, I, I have a much harder time envisioning how they would be as uh, sort of unique and captivating and authentic in the role as cages and and michael pena too do you know if did they did they have other actors for that part as well or do you know if he was if he was all along going to be going to be will I, I did not see anything about that the only thing i know about michael pena's character is that for him to get into the role he actually moved into the policeman's house that he was portraying so he lived there for a while i don't know if it was before they were shooting or while they were shooting I didn't see anything in terms of oh. other people. I think he might have always been... I, I didn't see anything, anybody else potentially cast for his role. The only one that sort of was up in the air in terms of any of the roles for this, I think, was just that lead role. Yeah, Michael Pena is great, and I've sort of known about this guy, but not until recently have realized how much he's worked, you know, and, and he's super diverse. Like, I, I mostly knew him from Eastbound and Down. I think it was season two, where he's <laughs> hilarious. He's just hysterical. He did, like, a Seth Rogen movie where there are mall cops, where he's he's great in that, but he could also be super serious in films like End of Watch or movies like this, right. you know? Yeah. And, and right. the guy is just, he's just a really gifted actor, and, like, he just doesn't have the look that I would have associated with a guy who could portray something this seriously, I don't know, like I, I had the opposite effect of the Shannon effect, right, where like I was able to sort of shed that comedic side of Michael Pena like immediately and think huh. of him like, oh yeah, he's just like another one of these diverse cops, you know, he's he's just representing the populace, right, I, I really like that and, and the contrast between him and Cage as people played really well too so i think they both got across like these fully realized characters i feel like i got to know the guys who they actually played so that's definitely doing the part justice i really only know him i think i mean i've seen him in a bunch of things i really most know him from end of watch which is i don't want to overstate it but maybe one of the best movies i've seen like in the last 10 years like that's just incredible him and jake gyllenhaal and that michael pena also a return cage club he was in a really small role in gone in 60 seconds but i mean i've only seen him in these serious roles like end of watch like fury he just it works here like i saw him and i knew that he was gonna be able to deliver this incredible memorable meaningful performance 
which is more than you can say for the the poor actress playing his wife. Maggie Gyllenhaal, I, I I love her, and I think she's tremendously talented, and I think she gets wasted in way too many movies. Maria Bello scenes, I could sort of go with for the most part, and I was not engaged in them as, as nearly as much as I was, or believing them as much as I was the Cage stuff or the Michael Shannon stuff. But the Maggie Gyllenhaal scenes, I, I'm sorry, I could not wait for those to be over. I didn't really believe them. I didn't believe that her that her daughter, the actress playing her daughter, was actually four. I, I don't know what it was. Again, I don't want to harp on it too much, but uh, those were the scenes that I really felt like melodrama more than the rest of the film. Like the rest of the film, or other parts of the film, were felt more procedural, and th- those those scenes felt more melodrama, and I just wasn't buying it. I think that she is done a disservice to, like you were saying, because we never really get her with Michael Pena. Like, we have that scene, right? Like you, like you mentioned earlier, the flashback to the pregnancy. We have that kind of hallucination where, toward the end of the movie, Cage is buried in the rubble. And I don't know, I think it's probably after Michael Pena is removed while he's down there alone. And he sees Maria Bello, and he says, I can't get out, I'm stuck. And she says, well, then get unstuck. Even though there's just two scenes, we have them together, we know their relationship. Even though we're introduced to her before we get those things... It gives her credibility. It makes her more real because she's more directly affiliated with the best part of the movie, which is them underground. Michael Pena and Maggie Gyllenhaal, it's almost like they're not... Like, the closest they get is Michael Pena telling Cage to radio about his daughter's name. Well, don't they have the one scene where they're they're in bed together talking about the name? I think, I think there's... I think oh, they have, yeah. They have, and that's the best scene that she's got in the whole movie, I think. I, I, I think you're totally right. I do not feel their their relationship the way I feel the Maria Bella and Nicolas Cage. And in fact, there's the, there's another scene with another shared memory where uh, Maria Bella is in the wood uh, Nicolas Cage's woodworking shop and has mm-hmm. a memory of him teaching his son how to sand a piece of wood or whatever. I don't I don't know. She, you know, they they share a look, and then we cut back to Nicolas Cage on the rubble, and it's it's another sort of handoff. And I, I think maybe you're right. I think maybe that relationship felt more solidified to me than the Maggie Gyllenhaal Michael Pena one. And again, these are both actors I really admire I, and I look forward to in films. And I just, I, I just didn't find her a lot of her scenes convincing, convincingly written. I would say. I think that maybe one other thing, and I don't know if this actually has any merit or not. Cage needing to get out just to finish his kitchen, you know, in terms of mounting the cabinets, finishing these cabinets. That is kind of cool and small and sort of unique. Michael Pena getting out for his wife's unborn baby, like, that's something that I've seen in Mm -hmm. a bunch of things, you know? I mean, somebody has to get home because their wife's pregnant. Again, like, this is what actually happened, this is based on reality. It just feels like a movie, as opposed to feeling like something real. In no way do I want to insult what actually happened, you know what I mean? They could have done something, or they could have tweaked something to make it feel more authentic. What actually was authentic feels kind of fake. Yeah, and what I would maybe suggest is go the opposite direction about their wives and and have them only exist in fantasy flashbacks throughout the film that sort of lead into maybe just a short scene of them at their house. And that would sort of elevate the wives, right? It would show, you could show stuff that they didn't do, but that you were thinking of while you were down there, right? Like you could idealize your wife in that regard. You didn't have to go the route of realism with them. You could have kept it with, here we are buried. What's our perspective? of our wives like what are our cherished memories of them and let's just cut to those and then back to us buried or something in that way and i mean i understand why they did it this way and that might have brought people out of the film at that point if we're going so realistic but to me in the second act in the middle of it in there that's where you got to get weird and surreal with two guys buried underground right like they start to drift out of consciousness and things like that for me that might have been a better way to write them into the film 
can I compliment Mega Jill Hall once now? <laughs> now that of I've course. Again, not that I, not <laughs> now that you broke her down, yeah. you can build her back up. No, I know. I know. At least she's better used to than than, than she was in the Dark Knight. Uh, Let's not get into there. It is. <laughs> no, you have issues with the Dark Knight. There it is. There it is. There is a scene near the end of the movie where she lifts her daughter. She's holding her daughter and she's talking to her. And her daughter asked, "You know, is Daddy coming home?" And she takes a beat and says, "Honey, I don't know." Which is not a thing she's been able. Her character's been able to say. You know, she has a, a, a line early in the film where she asks her father, "How do I tell Bianca that her father is dead?" You know, which is a should be a powerful moment. I didn't feel that as much, but then when she, when she says this to the girl, and she so underplays it. She and, and just sort of tells it to her straight, "Honey, I don't know." And it just broke my heart. I mean, it just confirms that that she is as good an actress as I as I know she is when she's given the right kind of moment and it's made in the right kind of way. I like her as an actress. I don't think she's great in this movie but i always like seeing her on screen but i guess the more you talk about the movies that she's done dark knight excluded because i love that movie and we're not going to talk about it (laughs) she does seem to pick roles or pick movies that just sort of don't do her justice i was actually just talking mike to melissa who was our guest on the national treasure episode and we're talking about specter we have i think a new cage club thing that we can invent is diane kruger syndrome (laughs) where you have like a female character who should be empowered and who kind of is empowered and kind of kick-ass ultimately just a nothing in national treasure diane kruger is this historian she's got this great job she is really high up in the government or historical society or whatever all movies she's told to shush Here, you know, Maggie Gyllenhaal is sort of this great, almost single mother, this powerful female strong woman who ultimately is sort of given nothing to do and just kind of, I mean, I know that this is a really tough day for her, but it's weird to see someone so strong and also so weak and not in terms of like a well-written script, but just not fully fleshed out and developed or given anything really to do. Yeah, there, there are so many places you can go to see Maggie Gyllenhaal given a lot to do and do it well. You know, go back to her breakout in Secretary or go see The Honorable Woman, the BBC miniseries, or there's plenty of work out there where she's good. And maybe it's because there aren't enough well-written roles for women. You know, I mean, I really do think this this part of this is the writing in these movies. And this is another, an, She may, this may be another symptom of that. She has to be more of a symbol here than a character. It's, it's kind of a shame. Which is weird because this is written by a woman. And I'm not saying that all women need to be able to write for women, but it's weird to have the weakest characters in this movie be women when the screenwriter is a woman herself. It seems kind of strange and unusual. I also just got a sense of overcompensation again. Like, I just feel like, you know, it would have been stronger if we didn't see as much of them, you know? And when we did check in on them, we see they're resolute or how strong they are or how they're dealing with their children. I I don't want to blame anybody here, but, you know, maybe they were like, you know, we need to hire a woman to write these women more. Just, it doesn't matter if it's a strong role. Like, they just need screen time. And it's unfortunate. We've seen that quite often in Cage Club, too. It's as we go Seriously. through the decades, you yeah. kind of, you know, all these things like, yeah, they pop up and you're like, wow, it is true. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And women in Cage Club movies are not really getting much more to do. Yeah, and I think this is as much Oliver Stone as anything else. I can't think of very many fully drawn women in his movies. I think he's less he's less interested in this, and I think it shows in, in the film. We know it gave me kind of a chuckle is like the guys, Pena and Cage, they're, they're trapped underground, and Michael Pena's like talking about G.I. Jane, you know? And they're like invoking like <laughs> yes. these strong fictional characters <laughs> yes, while yes. they're sort of dropping the ball with their, you know, portraying real-life characters. We have to talk about Jesus. A water Jesus. Oh, water we Jesus. We have to talk about water Jesus. Jesus, because there are two techniques that Oliver Stone uses in this movie that are maybe the least subtle 
One of them is slow motion. He's addicted to slow motion, and and he uses it throughout the film. And and there are a few places where it probably should be, and then many places where it shouldn't. I speak with some authority on the matter because in my first few years of film school, I used slow motion all the time, <laughs> and, and to the point that I was I was told quite explicitly in a class I was not allowed to use it anymore. <laughs> As a recovering slow motion addict, you know I call his bluff, and and he 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 should not be allowed to use slow motion. And then the other thing is this is is the water Jesus vision that comes which maybe it's a, a an issue with the effects or, or i'm not sure i thought that was a bridge too far i'm sure it actually happened that doesn't mean that it should be in the in the movie though and i'm not objecting to you know to jesus but this sort of i don't know jesus with a water bottle i just i did not buy it in the world of the film in the way that i think the film wanted me to what makes it stand out even more is that they talk about death that cage has this thing about you know life and death and pain and pain coming in waves and not going to sleep because you don't know if you'll wake up, and it's about your brain. And they talk about death in like these really honest and frank ways, and then Michael Payne is like, yeah, I had a vision of Jesus having me a water bottle. He wants me to come hang out. You could do something like that. Again, I guess it's sort of like a lot of the movie. You could include that kind of thing in the movie, but the way that it's handled doesn't make the most sense. We have no pretense for this type of film language up until this point, so it catches me completely off guard. What I did like about the film is that from time to time it would cut to black, you know, and it would sort of indicate the end of a moment or pinpoint a dramatic moment or something like that. So those I understood because I was with those the whole movie. If this movie started with a vision very quickly or was popping in from time to time, then I could probably understand this more. The other thing that gets me about it is Michael Kenya mentions it, so I almost feel like show it or mention it, but maybe don't do both of it. And then just lastly, like the design and the effect did strike me as a little cheap. I don't know. I just feel... Cheesy, yeah. Like it was. <laughs> I thought of the Buddy Christ from Kevin Smith films for some reason, <laughs> just because of this. Like Jesus with a modern water bottle, it was just hard to wrap my head around. Maybe, and I don't know if that is exactly what they're going for. I think it was supposed to be like a warm, sort of embracing, symbolic imagery moment. There, it caught me off guard and it threw me off track. Michael Pena is too good. Just keep the camera on his face and have him describe what he's seeing. This is a place where that would be the actual show, don't tell this moment. Show us how he's experiencing this moment. And I know he technically, he's, what is, he's probably closed his eyes, you know, but, but change that. Make that different in the movie and have him, have him just tell us. And I think that, that we might get that sense. Tell, have him describe what it smells like. Have him describe how warm it is. And I think that he's a good enough actor. He's already demonstrated that he could, he could pull that off. And then I'm not going to chuckle or snicker and I'm not going to see it as humor. You know, I'm going to see it as, as it's intended to be, which is, you know, a sense of salvation or a sense of, you know, give up or whatever it is. I'm going to, I'm going to read the moment appropriately, I think. Part of it is just a failure to adapt the book. I mean, Mike knows and Toby, you know from hearing the episodes, that a lot of these Cage Club movies that have been adapted from things, they choose to include weird things or choose to exclude weird things. It just seems like this is something that probably in the book was so notable or so memorable and they want to get it in the movie instead of just focusing on Michael Pena's face and letting him describe things, it's just weird. It's like they're, I don't know, I feel like I should read the book before I make statements like this, but I feel like they're trying to, like they're respecting the book as like this sacred text, 
and they don't want to change things, you're telling the same story, just tell it in the best way possible. My guess is that any person's actual death vision of Jesus is going to be so much more than you could ever put in a special effect in the mid-aughts in a movie that I think that they do a disservice to the, the Will's character's memory by putting this in the movie i i just i think i think you're right i think i just don't i think they could have done without it i think it would have been a more powerful uh, moment so they're down underground for like an hour and a half and michael shannon comes in and like we were talking about earlier i think teams up with william maypother and they're walking around looking for survivors we learn i mean this is like a heartbreaking number we learn at the end of the movie that they looked for days and days and days and they only rescued 20 people who had been trapped underground. And for how many people you know, were killed there, like to only get 20 is just devastating. Yeah. They're walking around and they find Cage and Michael Pena and in real life they were numbers 18 and 19. So you know, some of the last people they pulled out of the wreckage. It's like this great moment where they're just walking around and Michael Shannon saying, knock or yell if you can hear me, knock or yell if you can hear me. And it's almost like they, they've spent this whole movie actively trying not to give up, but also kind of giving up a little bit at a time. And this is like when they're at their darkest, when they're just about to give up, really, they get the salvation. It's great. And there's, a, and there's a moment that happens that echoes the moment where Michael Pena, where the shadow of the plane flies over him in, early in the movie, where he's unaware that Michael Shannon is, is above him. Because they're what, 30 feet below the surface or 50 feet below the surface or something. They're, they're below the surface of the rubble. And Michael Shannon's waving a flashlight around. And we see in the background the flashlight wave around behind Michael Pena, but he doesn't see it yet. It's this great moment where you can imagine the audience at the time watching the movie saying, you know, calling out to Michael Shannon was like a horror movie, right? They're a reverse horror movie. Like, make some noise, make some noise, he's above you. <laughs> or so you so want them to survive at this point. They've built such a rapport together. And, and this extends through the rest of the rescue. Like, as Michael Pena is being taken out and Cage is still, you know, stuck underground and maybe not going to make it, Will is calling back to him, Michael Pena is calling back to him, and it, it just, I, you really feel the connection between these guys at, at the end of this movie. And I really like how here in the third act, the film sort of gets handed off to Michael Shannon and the the Marines at this point, right? The search party. It almost feels like their mission is as futile as the cops in the beginning. I like kind of how this script is bookmarked in that way almost. That these guys, you know, feel just they're compelled to do their job. So, like, there might be people missing. We got to go search for them. It's just like in the beginning, like we're cops, you know? We don't know the whole situation, but there's people in trouble. So, like, we got to go do our job you know that's their compulsion and and i don't know i'm picking up on that here whether it was intentional or not it's definitely playing out that way and there's also just this great like this sort of what i was talking about before with like just spend a little time with these characters and get to know them like we meet a lot of new characters here in the third act and we yeah. spend very short amount of time the movie sort of just gets handed off like a football from one person to the other but they just give each guy sort of like their one line or their one little scene and we learn a that we need you know i mean no they're not going to be in the movie much longer but we are going to see their face and they are going to have to do some hard acting in some tough situations it just sort of reinforced my theory about the film is that like less is more you know like the less we're away from the actual scene when we cut away just cut away short with each person and, and move on quickly and i think we'll get the general idea i think in a weird kind of way i was thinking about this earlier when we were talking about when you were bringing up buried and now i think it comes up again here the end of this movie is kind of reminding me of the Martian a little bit, that you have Matt Damon stranded, and in the Martian you have all these different people, we're cutting back and forth, and they all have a job to do, 
coincidental, maybe, that it's sort of one person or two people alone, like singularly and wholly alone, and then you have other people doing everything they can to get these people back and to rescue them. Plus the Michael Pena connection. Yeah, he was one of the rescuers in The Martian. <laughs> like, I think that's good maybe for rescue movies. I don't I don't know. I haven't seen a lot of movies that do this sort of thing in the, in the third act like this. Like, introduce so many new characters and get away with it. I appreciate the tact in which it was handled and, and was surprised that they pulled it off. It makes you wonder why they weren't able to pull off the Maggie Gyllenhaal character. That if these people we meet... For the first time feels so real and feels so like in this world she's given so much more screen time than them like why doesn't she necessarily come through the same way because she has nothing to do they give her nothing yeah. to do she has no she has no goal to a large degree neither does maria bello and that's why i think that mike is right if we saw less of them and we had more of this kind of stuff not necessarily with all these new characters who could save a lot of these for the third act if you followed some other stories of people searching maybe or i, I don't know that this is to me the template structurally of, of how the how the middle of the movie could have worked better when you're not with Cage and Pena. Do you think that's intentional that they're not giving anything to do? Because there's literally like a two-minute scene in this movie where she goes to the pharmacy. She's so antsy and she has no control. I mean, I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily work out to her as a character or an actress in terms of her benefit, but like, could it be intentional that they give her nothing to do because it conveys this feeling of helplessness that she, waiting for news that if her husband's okay or not, could that be something that was intended? Absolutely. I'm sure it was intended. I'm just saying it doesn't work. You know, yeah. it's it's the thing of somebody writes a scene that's boring because they want the, want us to understand that the character is bored. Well, the scene doesn't need to be boring. You can show me boredom without making me bored. And so they could be listless and have nothing to do without making me feel listless and, and like desperate for them to have something to do. You know, and what, what it would mean is that you would have to change what actually happened. That's, I think, where, where the movie was never going to do that because it's so tied to these guys. And maybe rightly so. I'm not, sh- I'm not necessarily sure that what I'm describing would be a better movie but maybe um, you could imagine a version where Maggie Gyllenhaal finds out what's going on and then she goes home and rather than flailing around with her family she goes up to the new baby's room and is going to wallpaper that room and no one can make her stop give herself a thing to do to not deal with what's going on there there, there would be ways to play those scenes that I think would just serve her as an actress better that's that's all but I do think I think you're right I think it is intentional and I think it's because that's what actually happened and the guys who wrote the book and who are consultants on the movie and who survived in the uh, in the rubble want to honor what happened to their wives and i understand that i just don't think it makes for the best roles for the women in this movie that's fair so what's kind of cool about this rescue scene is that they are able to like pretty quickly in terms of on-screen time i don't know how quickly it happened in real life i don't know that we necessarily get a sense but they're down there right away they're trying to get michael Pena out they're using that lift to sort of lift the rubble off to get him out trying to get cage out all this different stuff but like what's cool about the scene and I think a lot about what makes this feel extra real, and this is sort of behind-the-scenes stuff, is that 50 real-life members of the Pennsylvania Police Department, New York Police Department, and the FDNY were flown to Los Angeles for the filming of this, and that when they're brought out and when they're rescued and sort of carried down that trail, these are all like real cops and firemen who were involved in 9-11 on that day. Wow. A lot of the extras in this movie were recruited from the site called policeactors.com, who apparently are policemen who are also part of the Screen Actors Guild. There's a sense of reality here in terms of the actors rescuing them, the extras, whether they're in the beginning of the movie or the end of the movie, 
because they know, I mean, they might not be actors of the capital A, but they know how to be real in this kind of situation. It pays to have people with with some experience that way in those moments, and you're right, it does make it feel that much more real. And the moments when Cage, just before he's actually rescued, when he's at his darkest moment, and, and he maybe is as close to death as he ever gets, if, again, we're in a tight, tight, extreme close-up on his face, and he's very quiet, and he's just saying, not yet. Not yet. I mean, it's just such a powerful moment. This, for me, I'm fully back on board in the movie for, for all the, the issues that I've had with with some of the other bits. He, again, is and continues to be tremendous in this role, and not necessarily better than he is when he's called crazy, and, you know, I'm not I'm not, I'm not stacking it up, because I, I think that that kind of performance has its own difficulties and qualities, And but but he's really good here, right? I mean, we can all say he's he's phenomenal at the end of this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I kind of was thinking about at the end here, and, and it makes even more sense now, Joey, now you tell me that there's a lot of actual officers in this shot. I was thinking sort of at the end of Captain Phillips, where Tom Hanks goes into the nurse's office, and that's like a real nurse, you know, and that yeah. film just felt real authentic, and that moment really helped sell everything that came before. It just sort of was this reminder, and I'm sort of getting that here at the end of this movie, too, with especially with Nick Cage being rescued, and, and the guys, like, talking to him, and everyone just feels real, like they're real, even if they're actors, half actors, half cops, like the vibe is coming across, you know, I get the feeling, right? I, I understand what they're going for and, and I feel it and it, it's like a tribute in a sense to me too. So it's all ending here. This super sort of depressing film that is sort of about hope is actually hopeful here towards the end when they get rescued. And one thing that kind of brings that to the next level in terms of what we're talking about, both what you're talking about and what I was saying about the cops is that after they're rescued, they cut to two years later because in reality after they were rescued, I mean we see at the end of the film that they have, who was it, the guy Cage plays, John McLaughlin was put into a medically induced coma for six weeks to have 43 surgeries and that the guy Michael Pena plays has like eight surgeries in six days or something like that. It's just just baffling amounts of surgeries. So they sort of skip over that and they cut to two years later and they're sort of like a thank you barbecue. There's even voiceover at the end, right, that, you know, 9-11 showed us the extremes of humanity that obviously you have the worst of what a a person is capable of, but you also have the best of what a person is capable of, giving up everything to go and find and rescue these other people. And so it's like this really sort of hopeful, uplifting ending and what's really cool is that the two people that Cage and Pena play, as well as their wives, are all on screen in that barbecue. And Michael Pena actually gives a hug to the guy he was portraying, that they're just there, you know, as friends and family within the movie. At the end of this movie that sort of celebrates their efforts and their heroic behavior, they're being celebrated at the end of this movie, too. It's a great little sort of flourish at the end. And it sort of gets you like really emotional that this like these are the best like these are some of the best people in the world. Yeah, it's true. I, I have a note here that says John's rescue is great. The end of the film was handled really well, and I'm never watching it again. <laughs> <laughs> not because the parts that were that, that didn't work as well were so terrible. I'm just not going to put myself through the emotions of watching the movie again. But I'm glad it exists, and I'm glad it was made to a large degree in the way that it was. Yeah, I mean, like, I didn't know that they both survived. I mean, obviously, one of them had to survive to tell the story, but I was not expecting them both to survive. So on top of all of the baggage that I brought with to this film regarding 9-11, I was also sort of taken along with the story of these 
to men as well. And in any other situation, these guys, their play would be hard to watch. And on top of it, we have all this extra context. For those reasons, I probably won't be revisiting it again anytime soon either. Uh, I'm definitely glad I saw it, but it was an emotional journey for me that I was not expecting it to be. This ending here just gets me again at the end, you know, <laughs> it's just re- a reminder yeah. of everything they went through and the uh, hope and all that stuff. So again, I just can't express enough how surprised I was that this was an Oliver Stone film and he really paid these guys like some real respect in, in doing it this way. One thing that's kind of interesting about the making of this movie is that New York as a city had no interest at all in terms of recreating 9-11 for the, the making of this movie, even though this movie pays tribute to the NYPD and the NYF, or FDNY and everything. So they let Oliver Stone and the filmmaking crew film the people on the way to Ground Zero. They wouldn't let the, the crew film them looking up to where the buildings were. So everything about Ground Zero, everything about the towers, that was all shot in Los Angeles. And apparently they used about 240 tons of material to recreate a fully three-dimensional Ground Zero in Los Angeles. I totally get why New York wanted nothing to do with having this be part of their history again. But it's scary and weird and kind of depressing to see that they recreated Ground Zero. It's admirable in the dedication, but it's also kind of heartbreaking. It's hard to imagine the projection designer sitting around drawing up plans. It would be a hard thing to do, don't you think? Not physically, but sort of psychologically and emotionally to be on the crew rebuilding this thing. I mean, all around, this had to have been a strange experience to work on this this movie for all for all the reasons we've been talking about. That would be your set, right? Your set is this recreation of, of Ground Zero. Like that's that's kind of crazy. Yeah, I don't think they kept that around for any backlot tours, oh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> riding around in the tram or anything. I mean, it is freaking amazing. It looks exactly like New York City Ground Zero. You know what I mean? Like, they recreated it exactly. Like, there's some seamless computer graphics, artwork stuff, whatever going on here. I was just, I think that that also got me a little bit. was just like, I can't believe how well he recreated. I mean, obviously, I knew they didn't shoot this in New York. I mean, at least the scenes in the rubble at the end and stuff, you know, obviously when they're underground, I was like, okay, this is a set somewhere. You know, they didn't really bury them underground or anything, but the shots of the rubble above ground, it's crazy just like how much it looks exactly like it did. Any last thoughts about World Trade Center? No, just Nicolas Cage, once again, in in this movie, does tremendous work. As you were saying earlier, Mike, if anybody is a doubter, that he is a that he is a tremendously talented guy because they don't get or understand or or are interested in what he does in films like Vampire's Kiss or Wild at Heart, they should come watch this movie. Yeah, and I second that. And I agree as well. So that'll just about do it for World Trade Center. Uh, this is not streaming anywhere, so if you do want to see it, you'll have to go out and buy it. So you really have to commit to this, I think. So thank you, Tobin, for joining us again for World Trade Center. You will be back several more times for movies that are a lot more cheerful and fun than this one, hopefully. But thank you for stopping by again. Hey, thanks, you guys. Thanks for having me. I, I look forward to more. So that'll just about do it for World Trade Center. For all things Cage, you can go to cageclub.me. You can read our past reviews, find past podcasts, follow us on Twitter, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. All things cage at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And that was Tobin Addington, and we'll see you next time on Cage Club. Mm-hmm.